Hello, you're listening to the Brainy Speech Therapist podcast. We're your hosts, Helen McLean and Jan McIntosh-Brown. Here, we aim to look at all aspects of brain injury, from the research to the rehabilitation, and always through the lens of speech and language therapy. Hi everyone and welcome to another episode of the Brainy Speech Therapist podcast. I'm Helen McLean. And I'm Jan McIntosh-Brown. So I think it's maybe been a couple of months since we've managed to get an episode together, but here we are, Jan and I, to have a chat tonight um, about um, a journal article that's all about um, aspiration pneumonia. Um, We're hoping that this will be maybe part one of a couple of episodes that focuses on dysphagia, um, particularly um, we were kind of inspired to do this because March the 16th is um, Swallowing Awareness Day. Um, and we've not really spoken an awful lot about dysphagia, but no, we, we haven't. thought this would be a, a good opportunity just to kind of link in with that side of, of our caseload. Yep, definitely. Um, So maybe to begin with, it's maybe helpful just to kind of say a little bit about our experience of of dysphagia and um, who we we kind of see. Um, So as as listeners will know, um, Jan and I both work um, in a a brain injury caseload. So I'll hold my hands up that I maybe don't see as much dysphagia as I used to when I worked in acute hospital sites and outpatients. Um, I worked in stroke and kind of care of the elderly and medical, surgical kind of areas. And so I saw a lot of dysphagia. Most of my caseload then was dysphagia. But since moving to an entirely brain injury caseloads, um, I see it not as much, just you know, quite a small percentage of my caseload, but also the presentation's very different. So not so much oral pharyngeal dysphagia, now as it is maybe some of that but a lot of maybe kind of changes due to behavioural um, difficulties and maybe more kind of the overfilling um, the mouth or actually struggling to initiate. Um, I've got both ends of the spectrum in my caseload at, at the moment. Um, so yeah quite quite a change within my experience of the brain injury caseload. I should also mention um We've talked before about prolonged disorders of consciousness. There's been that aspect as as well sometimes. But what about you, Jan? What's your kind of caseload experience with this? That's my background. So before working in brain injury, I worked with um, children and young adults with disabilities. And there I would have see, I saw people with complex dysphagia, so multiple disabilities and you know, requiring a lot of support with eating, drinking, swallowing, and then went to work in with people with brain injuries. And I, I would say that a lot of the, the difficulties that I face are similar. There's a lot of complex dysphagia that c- can just appear on your caseload. So I was thinking about it as, you know, I was driving here to do this podcast with Helen and thinking, you know, generally, you know, you what Helen was saying, you, you're, ju- you're managing a lot of behaviour, you know, the rushing and the overfilling and the impulsivity and the cognitive stuff. But 
someone can walk through your door who's nil by mouth and needing to transition back to oral intake or someone can have a total laryngectomy and then you know while that's different from the um, eating drinking swallowing difficulties it's still seen as something to be managed in terms of the person's um, airway protection and swallowing needs so so yeah it's a fairly mixed bag but I would say that the majority of my caseload now is more behavioural, cognitive, environmental difficulties. You saying that um, about people maybe, for example, having laryngectomies is making me just think back to a few cases I've had recently where the person, there's been some behavioural elements to eating and drinking, but when I've dug into it, there's maybe been previous health difficulties um, that's led to um, patterns, for example, of disordered eating even before their brain injury. And it's just to kind of, it just served as a reminder that when we are working with an individual, yeah, we're seeing the person who's had, had the brain injury or had whatever has happened to come to us for speech and language therapy, but just the importance of looking at the whole person. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> indeed. Because, I mean, I do have a couple of people on my caseload at the moment who are more elderly and it's just that change. What do they call it? Presby presbyphagia? Or pre yes, yes, um, yes, you've said that, Jan. I'm not going to try. <laughs> <laughs> um, so it's just that changing pattern of eating, drinking and swallowing and some of the difficulties that come with that. And... Um, so yeah, it's 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 just being flexible, isn't it? Mm -hmm. um, and just I think sometimes I think, oh my goodness, I I'm you know I'm I'm no expert in this area, but it's I I also think no, it's about knowing what questions to ask, knowing where to find the information, knowing when to get support. Um, I do have to sing the praises of my local NHS VF clinic. The they are always so supportive and. Even if I'm I'm asking the wrong questions, they soon direct me with the right questions and are always open to me referring somebody to them so that we can go through it together. So there's always support there for for all of us. So yeah, definitely yeah. Um, so with that kind of preamble in mind, Jan, you had um, Jan is always the best between the two of us of finding good articles for us to have a look at. Um, so, Jan, yes, yes you have yes. found found an interesting article all about predictors of aspiration pneumonia, and I think we were going to have a quick chat through the content of that article, and then that was maybe going to quickly or nicely lead into. Um, the RCSLT's position paper on thickened fluids that's not long yeah. been released. So yeah, okay, tell us so, a bit about this. So the so the title of the article, and if I can find the link, we will put it in the the notes for the episode. The title is the predictors of aspiration pneumonia, developing a new matrix for speech and language therapists. It was con um, conducted by Laura Ball et al. And it was, now here's a pronunciation, um, the European Archives of Otorhinolaryngology. 
Well done. <laughs> um, and it is August 2023. So thank you to Laura and her colleagues. So the article starts off, we'll just go through it and mm -hmm. just see what comes up in the chat. It, the article begins by posing the challenge of whether aspiration does result in pneumonia. And I think Helen and I were chatting earlier and just sort of reflecting on how difficult, how people are diagnosed with aspiration pneumonia, but actually it's, it, it seems to be difficult to actually say that it is aspiration pneumonia or what the actual cause of this um, diagnosis is. It seems to be a bit of a blanket diagnosis. Would you agree, Helen? Yeah, I was saying to Jan just about some, and I think this links in with the second fluids debate, um, but also just um, a, a study day that the dysphagia Clinical Excellence Network up here in Scotland had ran a few years ago that I was lucky enough to attend that Professor James Coyle from the University of Pennsylvania come over to do. So um, big shout out to the dysphagia CEN for making that happen. And I remember him talking about how difficult it is to diagnose aspiration pneumonia but also to be specific around what has caused that aspiration pneumonia to arise. Um, so can we say that it is down to prandial aspiration, i.e. aspiration of what has been e eaten or drunk, um, versus a hospital-acquired pneumonia? Um, and, you know, we'll, we'll, this is in kind of the, the nuts and bolts of the article around the different factors that the authors kind of looked at. Um, but I was thinking back to my days of being in an acute hospital, certainly seeing people that were not as mobile, had other medical issues going on, that um, maybe had poor oral hygiene and all of these things. Could they be causing the aspiration pneumonia rather than actually knowing for sure that it's what we've been eating and drinking? But we will say, you know, as you're saying, Jan, all the people in the article that the authors looked at here had all undergone a video fluoroscopy um, or a fees evaluation of their swallow, hadn't they? Um, mm. So they were all known to aspirate on eating yeah. and drinking. This was just <laughs> me picking hair, um, splitting hairs between the different types of aspiration. Um, that wasn't the focus of this article. <laughs> well, you know, that's what this is all about, just discussing whatever comes up for us. Mm -hmm. um, so the, the study lists 20 potential factors in predicting aspiration pneumonia so we're not going to run through the list just well <laughs> it's in the article and they used historic slt records they looked at 722 vf records between 2015 and 2022 at the royal devon and exeter hospital and of those 722 vfs 164 vfs resulted in the diet and fluid recommendations due to diagnosed aspiration pneumonia. Mm. So they, they focused in on those 164. Um, however, 12 of those 164 didn't have enough information. So the actual data set was 152 people. 
So the questions were, did the person um, who was diagnosed with aspiration at VF and then put on diet re recommendations, diet and fluid recommendations, did they then go on to develop aspiration pneumonia? And if they did, did they have any of those 20 predictors? Now, you know, they they give us, a, it's actually a, a really nice article to read. Sometimes, you know, when you're reading methods and results, it can be a little overwhelming. But I do feel that this this actually was quite, quite e easy to read, easier to read. So in order to um, look at the predictors, the, the person needed to develop aspiration, the diagnosis of aspiration pneumonia within three months of those diet and fluid recommendations put in place. Um, and the interesting fact was that actually 97% of the people that they looked at developed aspiration pneumonia within two weeks of their diet and fluid recommendations, which I thought was quite an interesting statistic. Um, so there was a couple, they did some, you know, different kinds of data analysis um, and they give the sort of the, the details about the, the, the people that were in the study. So that's all there. Um, and off, so then looking at the predictors, they, they ruled out two of the predictors because they impacted on the sensitivity of the of the factors. Uh, those two that they ruled out of the 20 were oral hygiene and the acidity of the food or drink. So they ended up with 18 factors that they were considering. And so of the 18, they then found that eight ha were significant or near significant in predicting in the people that developed aspiration pneumonia. So I thought that was that was quite interesting as well to help us um, think about what factors we might look at when we're working with people who might be at risk of aspiration pneumonia. Um, so maybe yeah. maybe I wasn't. It is a very easy article to read. However, I will hold my hands up and say that sometimes looking at data sets and things is not my strong point. No. Um, anyone who knows me knows that when it comes to data and numbers, um, uh, my, my brain does not work that way. Yeah. Um, but I did think it's really interesting that the, the, the kind of oral hygiene factor... And I thought that very interesting too. Yeah, because how often are we forever saying... The, the importance of oral hygiene, or is it just it's such a big thing? They do mean, they do have a qualifier on okay. that, um, and I may or may not have got it, so thank you for mentioning it, <laughs> um, is that they wondered with the oral hygiene whether these people have, have been seen by a speech and language therapist, they're, they've been for a video fluoroscopy, they're on diet and fluid recommendations. Every time I go and do something like this I ask for people to improve their oral hygiene so it could be that it's not showing up mm. like that the the poor oral hygiene is not showing up because it's already being managed right yes that makes sense yeah mm -hmm. I suppose that's the thing we are looking at a data set of people who, who are in treatment yeah yeah that's a yeah I'm glad that we've yeah. clarified that bit that 
helps yeah. me, Jack. Thank you. <laughs> so again, they, they do list the eight most significant or near significant predictors. I might run through these because they are interesting. Um, I think maybe what's most interesting is what's not included, as you said, oral hygiene. <laughs> um, but yeah, current sepsis or delirium is number one. Insensate larynx, number two. Number three is vocal cord palsy. Four, weak or no cough. Five, swallow disuse atrophy. Six, immunocompromisation. Seven, gastroesophageal. And eight, recurrent chest infections. Um, I'm not sure if they're in order because they do have some weighting that they do as one of their data analysis things. See, I'm not very good with the whole data thing either. We do well at bluffing it though, don't we? I'm sure our listeners are going, oh, they sound like they know exactly what they're talking about. Yeah, I'm sure thing is a technical term. Yes. Um, so that that is available in the article. You can tell that we're um, clinicians, not researchers. Let's yeah. put it that way. Yeah. yeah. Um, so they they do produce a really fantastic, well, it, it, it seems fantastic to me, a really fantastic uh, matrix, which weight, it's weight, it weights the factors um, according to, you know, what is most likely to predict. So I think that's where, you know, it's really interesting how it's rejuggled. I've listed them one to eight, but in the mm -hmm. matrix, they're actually reordered. Yeah, they kind of um, divvy it up a little bit into essentially kind of three areas. So they have um, some under oropharyngeal swallow anatomy and physiology, for example, the insensate larynx or vocal cord palsy. Um, they have nutrition and hydration as a kind of section. Um, so they do include... Um, thickened fluids or if there's alternative nutrition, hydration in situ um, and then they also have what they're calling presentation or medical history and activity status um, and they kind of subcategorise those as well but that's including things like if the person has a current sepsis or delirium um, if they need assistance with eating and drinking, what their cognition is like, if they're immunocompromised um, Unsurprisingly, recurrent chest infection is in there and gets quite a high weighting. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, so the matrix is used to um, develop a score for people, I suppose, to so see who is most likely to be at risk of this diagnosis of aspiration pneumonia. So the top score is for one single item is 14, and that is for those that that sepsis delirium gets 14 and then recurrent chest infections gets 14 now helen you can mm -hmm. see what is the top score is 12 isn't it for very high so yeah once someone is if you're if you're so basically those kind of three categories that i was mentioning there three yeah um the if you're adding up into uh, across those areas once someone's scoring over 12 the matrix is suggesting that that person's at a very high risk of developing an aspiration pneumonia. Yeah. Um, so you can see that if somebody is experiencing sepsis or delirium or is has a history of recurrent chest infections, then then the matrix is saying, yeah, they are ve at a very high risk. Which I'm sure fits in with the kind of clinical 
experience mm-hmm. that that our listeners will will have and mm-hmm. it's great that and the research is yeah it's backing up yeah backing up that but it's interesting some of the things that um they didn't see as being as high a a factor the thing i was very surprised about was the positioning Mm -hmm. and they only score that as a one and the gastroesophageal yeah but yeah the positioning thing they're unable to sit upright or having a kyphosis because again you know it's the first thing that i'll do when i see someone if they are in their bed i'll profile the bed so that they can be sitting up if they're unable to get out out of bed um you know and a it's just, I thought it was interesting, but then I wonder how much of it is that actually people are maybe not eating and drinking as much when their positioning is, is poor. Hmm. I can think of a few people I've had over the years who have a kyphosis and actually they don't eat and drink very much because it's a huge effort. So maybe that's reducing their risk. These are things that are just interesting to ponder and reflect yeah, on. Yeah, I think the... That's really interesting that you say that, Helen, because one of the things that they talked about, one of the maybe um, the biases were that in order to be considered in the study, people had to be able to attend a video fluoroscopy. Mm. And so, of Mm -hmm. course, if the positioning wasn't wasn't something that would support a video fluoroscopy um, then they were not included in the study very true because I'm thinking I know my colleagues who run VF clinics um, the the x-ray machines that they have um, basically some chairs don't fit in Mm -hmm, them mm -hmm. so that can immediately rule out some people coming and I've seen people with kyphosis again you know just actually getting a good visualization is really challenging so yeah it's back to that self-selecting and the other one that's really interesting which probably leads us into our next chat oh before we go into our next chat i would like to get some feedback on the matrix i did talk to a couple of my the speech and language therapists that I work with in my workplace and ask them if they would try using the matrix and a more sort of the more of the medical model to because that means is not very medical model um to see how how our people map onto the matrix so I'd really love to hear other people's experience of trying the matrix and and what they think about it so in terms of uh, moving on to the thickened fluids uh, discussion, um, thickened fluids in this study came with a weighting of four, which I thought was was quite interesting given that I guess my, my thoughts about thickened fluids is that it's off, well, the the he- one of the hesitations about using thickened fluids is that if it is aspirated, it is likely to do more harm than if a person aspirates normal thin fluids. So, get but yet here in this study, it actually is weighted at four. So, yeah, yeah interesting. And I think just kind of thinking about the this position paper, then so if if people aren't aware perhaps our um, listeners out with the UK might not be aware that the Royal College of Speech and Language Therapists um, issued a position paper 
on the use of thickened fluids and the management of people with swallowing difficulties. Just this year? Yeah, just in January. Um, and so if you are an RCSLT member, um, you can log in and you can download that position paper and um, there's the full paper at 44 pages but there's also a couple of helpful um, PDFs that you can download. One for speech and language therapists that summarises the, the key points and there's one that's for kind of dissemination to show non-speech and language therapists just I imagine maybe for, for example, care home staff is what I'm thinking, or other hospital staff. Could you staff. put a link to that document? Because I haven't seen it. In yeah. The, so we're looking at the uh, a summary page, is like a poster, isn't it? Yeah, so that it's a, could, oh, okay. yeah, that's just so a couple, couple of pages, pages. but yeah. Um, could you so, put a link to that in the notes? So, well, these are in the members area, so I don't know if they are okay. somewhere. You would hope that that would be available to... Yeah, others, but we'll see. We'll see. Um, worst case scenario, I'm sure we can put screenshots of it onto yes, our um, quite. social media feeds. But um, yeah, so it's just there's some nice. It gives a nice kind of summary, and I think it's really nice to see this position paper because personally, in Lanarkshire where I am, I know myself and my colleagues in the adult service have certainly been aware of a lot of this information that they talk about and been trying to move to to this kind of framework of managing dysphagia not not immediately going to thick and fluids because we've moved away from thicker is better is kind of a mantra that's been around for a long time and again shout out to Scotland's dysphagia CEN um, and the one woman army that is Tracy Lazenby Patterson, who's one of the co-authors of the position paper. Um, but I, you know, I did read the whole position paper a couple of weeks ago, and um, it wasn't saying not to use thick and fluids. It's quite, mm. it's quite balanced. Yeah, I think it's. This is the interesting thing. It's basically saying that there's not sufficient evidence to conclude that yeah thickened fluids will it's gonna it's always going to cure, cure or help the problem yeah it's not necessarily going to say we're going to reduce complications but um that sometimes it is absolutely the right thing for the person so the person the, might choose it as well because i think you know i i have worked with people who just feel that slightly thicker is it helps them to feel more in control of it. So Yeah, and I think this is the interesting thing the position paper says, is that for some people, particularly um, if they have difficulties at the oral stage, mm-hmm. um, that thickened fluids can help for those people and that actually might encourage them to continue to, to drink. Um, whereas if the person is consistently coughing on fluids... On thin fluids, yeah, fatigue. Absolutely. So if it means that someone can actually make that decision, um, or or their their care staff, if if that's what's what's most important, um, appropriate in that situation, um, but also saying that that needs to be reviewed and monitored, mm-hmm. um, because there can be adverse, um, effects for some people, for example, dehydration, UTIs. Um, reduced appetite, um, thickened fluids. There, are, there is some evidence around 
um, changes to bowel habits. Um, I don't know if it is in the the the, the position paper. It, it is. I'm just reviewing it here around the impacts on absorption of certain medications. Okay. So there's things like that that we might not have necessarily always had at the forefront of our mind, but this is just making us think think it through rather than going, that person is coughing, we're worried about aspiration, therefore we need to put them on a thicker fluid. Um, and just on that, because I think, like I say in Lanarkshire, we've been thinking about this for a, a wee while, um, but the... RCSLT have their own podcast and the authors of the paper um, spoke on the podcast about their own experiences around thickened fluids and what made them start to kind of question when it's helpful to use or not helpful to use and that's a really interesting listen we'll definitely we'll be able to put a link to that because I listen to that on Spotify so that is definitely available to everyone <laughs> but yeah yeah so the it's it's a working process uh, i think they're just trying to support us to not immediately jump to thickened fluids i mean you know i guess we've all probably experienced the 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 sort of it is very cultural um i rem- i remember i was working in a service with um someone and i wasn't in the service on the day but the person choked on a piece of chicken and it was a one off it was just that one off situation and the service manager called me and said should i thicken his drinks and i thought why why are you asking me that you know but i think it is very cultural in care homes and nursing homes and things just to go if the person's having difficulty swallowing the first thing we do is thicken people's drinks so mm-hmm. it's but do you know sometimes helen i it can be a bit scary not to do something yeah do you know i think that's a really valid point people it's a very clear thing that's happening um when someone is coughing on something that they're eating and drinking and if you're in the position of looking after someone and something like that happens um people people are frightened and understandably so um we do slightly joke sometimes that for speech and language therapists it's a slight rite of passage to have someone have a big choking episode in front of you when you're assessing them and you don't panic um but for someone who is assist, working in a, a adults with learning disability centre or a care home or supporting a child with cerebral palsy uh, in a school, you know, there's so many scenarios that if you're the person who is there, the frontline responsible, um, you, you want to know, well, if this has happened once, it might happen again. And what can I do to change that? So... I think modifying the the diet or the fluids has often been kind of the the go to, um, but that is touched on in the position paper that we, as speech and language therapists, now have a number of kind of tools mm. in our toolkit that we can draw upon. Um, and I I had the the privilege of um, it was somebody James. I'm sorry, I don't remember your name, James. Uh, from the Scottish Dysphagia Sen, um, he was doing a study on I and INSA Humbert's step 
programme. Okay. I don't remember the what the step stands for, but I had the opportunity to do it's an online platform for um training in eating, drinking, swallowing disorders. But I really like something that, that she said about, you know, just stepping back and seeing if the person can sort things out for themselves. Um, and I think that's often something that I try to do, particularly for people who do have cognitive challenges or language challenges. If they're having a difficulty with a, you know, a swallowing task and then I start adding in language and instructions and do it this way, do it that way, change this, change that. We're changing the natural process of swallowing. So, um yeah, just being less, sometimes less is more, mm -hmm. you know. Mm -hmm. um, but, I, you know, in, in terms of thickened fluids, you know, I, I, I am hesitant to put anybody on thickened fluids until, you know, having a VF and and just seeing actually what's going on. Can we can we manage things with thin fluids? Is there, you know, is there strategies? Can we get the person up and walking and, you know, yeah. just clearing out their deep, doing some deep breathing to clear the lungs? And and that's, I think, at the core of the position paper is that having the person at the centre of the decision-making, what is right for that person? So like you're saying, Jan, for one person, a thickened fluid is maybe going to be absolutely a thing to do, but for another person, it's not. So it's just about to encourage us all to think through that a little bit more. I was just double checking there, the STEP programme that you mentioned is mm -hmm. Swallowing Training and Education Portal. Um, again, we could put a link into that. I keep on hearing about this and not actually looking at it myself. But the website is stepcommunity.com. And INS has got her own down the hatch podcast mm -hmm. and then there's another one called Swallow Your Pride by Teresa Richard. Richards. Yes. yes, so there's quite a few. Um, swallowing mm. is actually great for podcasting so yeah, yes. what gave me the idea for this podcast. Yes, it is, know? isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Um, so yeah, there's, there's, like, I think it's fair to say neither Jan or I are at the forefront of dysphagia no. management um, nowadays but it is something that still definitely kind of crops up. Mm -hmm. um, and I think um, um, it's maybe something for a future episode that we can think about the other kind of dysphagia management aspects. But um, hopefully what we aim to do for our next episode is actually speak to a speech and language therapist who is looking at how to ensure that the position paper is, is implemented in a practical way within... Um, within a real kind of NHS setting. So um, make sure to, to listen in for that when we release that episode next time. Yeah. All right. We're going to go and have our dinner. So thank you very much for listening. Uh, we hope you all have a great rest of your week. And so it's bye from Jan. And it's bye from Helen. I feel like the two Ronnies. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for listening, everyone. Okay. Bye. bye. and views expressed in this podcast are of the individual and should not be considered professional advice. If you have a brain injury, suspect you have a brain injury, or think someone you know has a brain injury, please seek dedicated professional advice.